Last month, residents of Taipei, Taiwan's capital, were celebrating the Lunar New Year. Unlike most of the world, life in Taiwan throughout 2020 continued mostly as it did before the pandemic. The story of why this island experienced a very different kind of health crisis begins one year ago, during the same annual holiday. On the final day of January 2020, a cruise ship named the Diamond Princess docked at the Taiwanese port city of Jilong. The ship had set off from Hong Kong six days previously, with more than 3,500 passengers and crew on board. Eric Chung, a 68-year-old tourist from Hong Kong, and his wife, Wong Wong, were on board, celebrating their 40th wedding anniversary. Eric says he'd just retired. He'd worked as a warehouse manager, and he and Wong Wong had booked the cruise as a special treat for their anniversary. Their tour set off from Hong Kong on January the 25th, the first day of the Lunar New Year. Their plan was to go ashore at Yokohama and spend four days in Japan before the trip finished on February the 2nd. The Diamond Princess docked in Jilong at around 6 a.m. on January the 31st. News of a novel virus in the Chinese city of Wuhan had been reported throughout January. Eric and his wife and around 3,000 other passengers and crew disembarked to spend the day on shore. Eric and Wang Wang took a train westwards, beyond their capital, Taipei, to a district called Zhongli, to visit an old friend. The journey took about an hour. They had a meal with their friend before traveling back again to Jilong. According to Eric, they had to make it back to the cruise ship before 5 p.m. They walked around the shops at Jilong Station and ate some street food and says most of the shops were still closed because of the holidays. But in the days to come, their data footprint and that of more than 3,000 other passengers and crew would become vital to Taiwan's authorities. A few days later, with the Diamond Princess docked in the Japanese city of Yokohama, 10 positive cases of coronavirus were identified on board the ship. The virus spread rapidly, rising to 690 cases within two weeks. What the government does say is that any new cases that are going to be declared, these people contracted the virus before the quarantine began. They do not believe that any of the cases... even though An 80-year-old passenger who had disembarked in Hong Kong on January the 25th had tested positive for coronavirus, meaning the virus had already been working its way through the ship before it docked in Taiwan. In the end, Eric and his wife tested negative. But in Taiwan, the government began a race against the clock to contain the virus using big data analytics. And it worked. You're listening to Tectonic. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times and your host for the series. This season, we're exploring how the pandemic is accelerating the transition to an online world and transforming so many aspects of our lives. In this episode, we're looking at how Taiwan tracked the location data of more than 600,000 citizens to stop the initial spread of COVID-19. Just how far are those who live in democratic societies willing to trust big government with their data? Catherine Hiller, the FT's Greater China correspondent based in Taipei, has been reporting for this episode. 
I came back to Taiwan about two years ago. I, I was based here before for the FT, but uh, in between I reported from uh, Beijing and from Moscow. I remember last year quite vividly, mostly because for everyone in Taiwan, this was a sense of deja vu. In 2003, Taiwan underwent a SARS epidemic, and that epidemic too, in that case too, the virus had come from China. When the Diamond Princess docked in Taiwan, I didn't notice it at all because I don't normally visit Jilong Harbor. The moment um, I started paying attention to it was when it um, arrived in Japan and when it became known that there was an outbreak aboard the ship and that the ship had been in Taiwan just a week earlier. Taiwan's government would try to identify the exact movements of the ship's passengers and crew during their day's visit in Jilong. The person in charge of that whole operation was Chen Ximai, Deputy Prime Minister. He is now mayor of Kaohsiung, Taiwan's third largest city, but at the time he was in charge of the operation in the cabinet. I traveled to the south of Taiwan, about 400 kilometers south of Taipei, to Kaohsiung, where he works now. The day he was speaking to me, was a very busy day for him. When he came in, he directly asked me, oh, let's, let's make it short because we, we have a public health emergency here. There had been a gas leak in the city. And so while we were speaking, aides were coming running in and handing him their cell phones for, for him to speak to the uh, people from the fire department, get, get briefings from on the scene and barking orders into the phone as to what to do next. Chen said that after a day of investigation, they realized that they couldn't track the movement of all the passengers. So they requested passengers' mobile phone signal data from the telecom operators. That allowed authorities to immediately find out where in northern Taiwan these people had been. Based on the mobile footprints of the passengers, they identified their potential contacts. And then they used the medical insurance data of those potential contacts to do a follow-up investigation. Chen believes that there's a big difference between Taiwan and other countries because Taiwan had been through a SARS outbreak already. He mentioned that after SARS, the government amended the Infectious Diseases Prevention Law. The law authorizes the government to access personal data. They can't make this information public, but access to such data for use in an epidemic investigation is permitted by law. The task force focused on identifying the GPS of shuttle buses used by the tourists, their credit card transaction logs, CCTV, and mobile location data. They found that when they used the shuttle bus GPS data, the information they got was very limited. It would just track the tour bus, not individual people. When people go to a sightseeing spot, they get off the bus, they run around, they take pictures. Mobile position data proved to be the most useful method as it was able to provide accurate information on the location and time of exposure between people. Within 24 hours, they had information on 620,000 people. Mm.
So, Catherine, what criteria were used to identify over 620,000 Taiwanese residents who may have come into contact with potential carriers of the virus? And how quickly was such a large group of people identified? The mobile phone operators identified uh, which phones were the phones used by Diamond Princess passengers. That was actually not very difficult because... Once these passengers started roaming on on the Taiwanese network, so when when the ship approached the Taiwan coast, then they were all in one place. They were identified as this group. And after that, only a a day after the data sweep was initiated, more than 627,000 people in and around Jilong received a text message. And the text message told them that they should monitor their health And in case they discovered anything unusual like flu-like symptoms, temperature and so on, they should quarantine at home. And were this group of people tracked in any other way? Actually, yes. The authorities always stress that the data was anonymized, but they did run the mobile phone numbers of these more than 620,000 people against the mobile phone numbers of members of the National Health Insurance. And they built a kind of uh, software tool that would issue an alert when anyone in this group went to see a doctor for flu-like symptoms. So they uh, would have received alerts and would have then paid special attention to those people. Chen said that there's a lot of caution when it comes to databases. He said that people are reluctant to provide data that can be integrated and analyzed for broader uses. He didn't think that the use of this data touched upon privacy rights because it was all depersonalized. Chen also told me that after using big data in the epidemic prevention effort, the government was now also considering how big data can be used in agriculture, transportation, healthcare. He argued that the use of some data allowed the Taiwanese government to react faster. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Is there strong public support in Taiwan for the government when it comes to these kinds of measures, such as conducting a wide sweep of people's location data? In Western countries, it would probably be viewed as an encroachment of privacy. Yes, actually, in general, there is widespread support for these measures. Given that this is democracy and the epidemic prevention measures are being communicated in a very transparent manner, there's also strong trust that the government will not abuse its access to to that data. Taiwan hasn't always been a democracy. So where did this trust in government come from? Actually, for the last five or six years, uh, we've increasingly seen the government use technology to engage people. And I think the main origin of this is 
the Sunflower Movement, that was a student campaign in 2014 that opposed a trade deal with China. And that movement uh, led to a steep increase in online activism and, and e-petitions and so on. So th this is now, the government has realized that this is a great tool to increase trust and they've put it to great use. What you're talking about there is digital democracy, the idea that online platforms can be used transparently to keep citizens informed and engaged in the political decision-making process. And we've seen this approach used in Estonia, Iceland and local government in Barcelona. Have these European examples played a part in shaping Taiwan's digital democracy? Yes, so Taiwan is very aware of these uh, experiences in Europe and Taiwan has looked to these digital European models as examples of how to increase transparency in policymaking. And uh, we actually have a somebody called a digital minister here. And so uh, digital minister Audrey Tang, she herself uh, started her political career during the uh, Sunflower Movement, and she has pushed for greater use of digital democracy initiatives. As the digital minister in charge of social innovation, I have uh, long advocated for the idea of fast fair and fun in co-creating with the society. So I got involved in the counter-pandemic effort, I think around early February. I asked Audrey if she had any apprehension about the government collecting citizens' data at the start of the pandemic. At that time, I had some apprehension about some of the proposals. Uh, there's countless vendors that want to uh, advertise really for their bracelets, for their dongles, uh, for their new devices uh, through GPS or through Bluetooth or through other uh, technologies that will track a finer detail of whereabouts because, uh, or so they claim, that the cell phone tower triangulation is so very imprecise, especially in rural areas where there's not so many cell phone towers. But even if in municipal places, the uh, resolution is just 50 meters in radius. So they said that you couldn't know which room uh, the person is in uh, or which floor the person is in. You only know the generic whereabouts. Early in the pandemic, Taiwan's government established a system called the digital fence. Their phone is placed into the digital fence so that if they break out of that um, place, then of course the automated text message is sent to the local police and so on. And that system basically is deemed constitutional because it doesn't collect new data. It is existing triangulation data that your cell phone tower operators are collecting anyway. And we use the SMS systems for earthquake advance warning and flood advance warning as well. If people understand the technology is not like the GPS and it's not going to read through its uh, SMS communication or other apps running on their phone, then people will feel much more comfortable understanding that after the 14 days, there's no constitutional basis for us to keep using the digital fence system on the people under quarantine. So it avoids a labeling effect. Taiwan wasn't the only East Asian democracy to use the location data of its citizens. South Korea's system of mass testing and contact tracing proved largely successful in containing the virus, at least until December 2020, when outbreaks of COVID-19 began to rise. I think it's important to understand the legal framework for how the tracking system works. That's Edward White, the FT's bureau chief in Seoul. I think there's a view in some parts of the world that it's very invasive. And in some ways it is. Basically, government agencies, certain agencies in certain circumstances, 
can access phone records, that sort of geolocation data off your cell phone, off your smartphone. They can access your credit card data and they can use CCTV footage from wherever they want to locate and track people. This is obviously something that has applied at times during the pandemic. Speaking to people in the West, my impression is that probably a majority of people in, in Europe and maybe also in the US think such an approach is totally unacceptable. So that kind of access that governments here have to people's data, the lo phone location data and maybe the combination with, with other data sources as well is maybe undermining civil liberties. What's your sense in South Korea how people view the fact that the government can access that data and how do they view these measures that have been taken during the pandemic? What you've really seen, I think, is that people understand that this is actually a life and death situation. They're aware of the risk. They don't exist in a world where they think that this isn't a real threat to themselves and to their families and to their communities. So they are willing to be part of the, the broader community and they're willing to do their part. And I think this is a question of how the West actually looks at countries in Asia. And I think there's a view sometimes, and perhaps was maybe true in the past, there's a view that some of these populations are still very submissive, that these are the hangovers of recent or comparatively recent military dictatorships. But I think that's a fallacy from my point of view, having lived in Asia for, for a wee while. This is, these are about sort of common courtesies. It's about understanding the, the public health risk. And while, yes, they do have to give up civil liberties for a wee while, I think there's an understanding that it won't be permanent. And should it become permanent, I think then you would see a backlash and then you would see people being more concerned about it. But when you look at what's happening in Europe and you think, well, these are places that don't have these systems in place, and yes, they're going back into lockdowns. Having had all of these warnings and having had the lessons that Asia has provided, I think that actually underscores for a lot of people in South Korea that actually their system is the right one. I think as citizens and as consumers, actually, we both have, I think, rights and responsibilities. We shouldn't just expect our data to disappear into vast lakes or diffuse clouds without asking questions around what is being done with it, in whose interest, for what purposes. That's Sir Nigel Shabbolt, a professor of computing science at Oxford University. Nigel is also the co-founder of the Open Data Institute in London. The Institute works with governments and companies to build trustworthy data systems, focusing on ethical issues around how people's data is collected, managed and used. Given the examples of Taiwan and South Korea, I was keen to discuss how other governments can ensure that people's data are collected and stored securely during a public health emergency. You can collect the data and you can simply maintain an exposure graph. You don't have to have the identities dereferenced to be very useful as a tool that models uh, how infection might be moving through a community. So again, the, the, the extent to which information needs to be disclosed under what conditions can be adjusted given the context. And these are positive uh, um, use cases. Uh, too often, though, uh, a government finds itself in possession of this very powerful uh, resource and really can't resist the urge to use it in other contexts. Nigel, there's always a danger of mission creep in this area, isn't there? 
I remember in your book, The Spy and the Coffee Machine, you gave the example of the murder of Anna Lind, Sweden's foreign minister, in 2003, when the police accessed the National Biobank to look for data which would help their criminal investigation. So is it a difficult thing to stop data being collected for one purpose being used for another? It is. Uh, And I think the uh, part of the requirement on us as open societies, as deliberative democracies, is to say, constantly reinterrogate those boundaries. The extent to which DNA profiling now is being routinely used in criminal investigations, the extent to which data collected under one regime, for example, genealogical research, is suddenly turning up being used for cold, cold case purposes in all sorts of criminal investigations. Now, we have to be very careful that we understand uh, where we are comfortable that this mission creep hasn't become just simply out of control. Nigel, when we talk about data, there's often quite a lot of concern about surveillance capitalism, the kind of corporate tracking of our personal data in the West. But there's also surveillance communism in China and the kind of state surveillance of citizens. Are you pessimistic about how this data is going to be used? And how can we tilt the playing field more towards the positive uses of data? We can find extremely positive uses of data. And and I think it's really important we don't become thoroughly dystopian about the the technology and the opportunities. Data availability uh, and the ability to innovate and produce really valuable outcomes, there are so many examples of it. Again, if we look at the scientific collaborative effort, the generation and production of the vaccines, the sharing of fundamental scientific knowledge at every level has shown what we can do. And if we believe in the West that fundamental values around autonomy, self-determination, dignity, uh, the right of certain liberties for individuals, understood in the context of a wider collective good, we've got to argue those values, it seems to me. Let's have the argument about the values and the priorities and the trade-offs between those values between ourselves as informed citizens and consumers and as nation-states. As Nigel suggests, there are no simple answers, but it is vital that all of us in civil society keep fighting to ensure good outcomes of data use. Next time on Tectonic, has the pandemic changed the world of education for good? There is no way that universities can, at their current pace, come near to satisfying demand in the market. Universities do a great job in educating the whole human. They are not set up for dealing with rapid societal change. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times in London with me, John Thornhill. The reporter this week was Katrin Hiller. The producer and editor was Liam Nolan. Location sound in Taiwan was recorded by Aki Chen. Sound design and mixing was by Breen Turner, and we had additional audio editing by Howard Shannon. Nicole Liu in Hong Kong and Edward White in Seoul provided additional reporting. Emma Zhu in Beijing helped with translation. Our executive producer was Cheryl Brumley, and original music was composed by Metaphor Music.